Good morning. So glad you're here uh, with us this morning at church. And uh, if you have a Bible with you, I hope that you do. Uh, Would you please take it and turn with me to Isaiah 48. Old Testament book of Isaiah chapter 48. We are beginning today a brand new series called Life Defined, uh, Knowing What Matters Most and Why. And uh, for the next four weeks, Lord willing, um, we are going to be asking some of the most basic and yet some of the most important questions that we could possibly ask, not only as followers of Jesus, but uh, collectively together as a church as well. Why are we here? What are the most important commitments that we should have? And why are those the most important commitments that we should have? And as we were talking and planning and praying as elders earlier in the year, um, we sensed that this was a really good time for us as a church as we begin a brand new ministry year, five years old as a church. Uh, just a really good time for us to circle back to some of these more foundational questions about why exactly God has put us here. And so you could say that this series over the next four weeks, uh, Lord willing, is really all about mission. What is our purpose? What is our ultimate purpose? What are the greatest things that we could really give our lives for, both as a follower of Christ, but also together as the people of God? Because I think we could all say that we want our life to count for something. We all do. And and particularly, we want our life to count for something that's far greater than ourselves. I remember about six or seven years ago when our family was going through some significant changes and sensing that God was moving us in a new direction, preparing us for something different. And, and church planting was put on the table at one point, and, and there was so much about that that absolutely terrified me. But, but our prayer as a family going through that stage of our life was, Lord, if, if you're going to move us, and, and if you're going to take us from where we are, a place that we love with people that we love, and, and it's fairly comfortable here, if, if you're going to take us and move us to somewhere else, then, then Lord, take us and put us somewhere where, where we're going to see you do things that can't be explained in any other way except that you're doing them. Like, Lord, take us to a place where we're going to see people saved and we're going to see people baptized. We're going to see lives changed for the glory of God. We're going to see you do things, God, that simply cannot be explained in any other way. It can't be up to me. It can't be up to the people around me. Like, God, this has to be something that you do. God, we want to be a part of that. And, and here we are now, all these years later, and, and we've seen God's faithfulness in those ways, haven't we? And, and we've seen him over and over just pour out his grace and his mercy and his love upon this church and, and upon your lives in so many different ways. And, but can I, can I just be honest with you? I, I find myself, again, at a place in life and a place in ministry where, where just as, as a pastor, as a pastor of this church, I'm, I'm just like, I'm putting that question back on the table. I'm putting that prayer back on the table before God. Like, God, as a church, what is it that you want us to do? Where is it that you want us to go? And, and God, if you're going to take us somewhere, take us knowing that we have your presence that goes with us. That's what makes us distinct. But Lord, take us and take us to places where there's no question that the work that you're doing is the work of your hand. Like we don't want the work of man. We don't want what I can do. We don't want what you can do. We want the work of God among us. And I think um, that many of you, you could stand up and tell a similar story in your own life as well. Like, we all want our life to count for something greater than ourselves. The challenge in that, though, is that in the quest to find something greater, 
we often settle for something lesser, right? We often settle for the lesser things in life that we can see right in front of us, things like happiness and comfort and the temporary security of things like finances or relationships or the material possessions that the world can provide that last only for a short time. And, and hear me when I say there's nothing wrong with those things. The challenge becomes, though, when we make the lesser things into the greater things. Because when the lesser things become the greater things, we eventually end up losing both, and sometimes we don't even realize it. So my prayer for this series is that uh, we will come to know again, maybe in a fresh way for some of us. There could be some of you sitting here in the room that my prayer for us is that you would come to know, maybe even for the very first time, what the greater things are that every single person has been created by God for that you would know that with crystal clarity as we get into God's word, that you would know the greater things that God has made you to know and to be and to do. And the reality is this is for everyone. Like this is for everyone here. It doesn't matter how young you are. doesn't matter how old you are. doesn't matter how long you've known Christ as your Savior and Lord. doesn't matter who you are or where you're from. The questions that we are about to ask in this series are for everyone because what we are about to see in God's word over these next four weeks is your life defined. Like some of you could be sitting right now where I was six years ago. And you're praying those very same prayers. You're asking God for those very same things. God, there's got to be something more than this. Like, God, there's got to be something more that I can dig into, something more that I can give my life to, something more that I can lose my life in. God, there's got to be something that takes me to a new frontier of my faith and my relationship with you. And this series that we are about to dive into over these next four weeks is an invitation for every single one of us to step deep into God's word and to see what God has for you, to see what God has for us together. Like this series is purposely designed to recalibrate our focus on what truly are the greater things in life. And I would even go to the extent of saying what truly are the greatest things in life. So let me ask you as we dive into this series right now, young and old, big and small, doesn't matter who you are, for everybody right now, let me ask you, what are you giving your life for? Like right now, what are you living your life for? What are the most important things to you in this life? Is there an urgency in your life right now for the things that matter the most? If you and I were to sit down and talk just one-on-one, -on -one, even just for a few minutes, like would you be able to identify and articulate the things that really do matter the most in this life? If I were to go to one of your best friends or to your husband or your wife or whatever and, and ask them the question, what is it that's most important to that person talking about you? what would they say? And would their answer to that question about what's most important to you be the same as your answer to that question about what mo what's most important to you? Because there's an urgency within us to really know what matters the most and why it matters the most and then give our lives to those things. And here's the biggest question of them all. In the end, when you consider what you are living your life for and what you are pouring it all out for right now, in the end, when you stand before the God who made you, will any of it be worth it? Like, is any of it, is it gonna be 
gold and precious stones and silver, or is it going to be wood, hay, and stubble, and it just all gets burned up in the end? Like, what's it going to be about? Listen, friends, we need to know. We need to know what matters most and why. And so, as we dive into this series this morning, I want to give you a really simple roadmap of where we're headed. Uh, Today, we're starting with the most important place of all. We're talking about the mission of God today. And uh, we're going to see this morning from Isaiah 48, Lord willing, um, that God has one single mission. We're going to unpack that as we go along this morning. And then from there, next week, uh, we're going to look at the mission of the church and uh, the fact that God has given us collectively some very specific instructions. And, and as part of our focus on that, uh, next week we will also be commissioning our new elders next Sunday morning. And so um, I would encourage you to do everything that you possibly can to be here uh, for that. That's an important part of what it means to be part of this church family, and uh, we're excited for that. And then that will then lead us into week three. Uh, Lord willing, we'll see from God's word what is the mission of my life. Why am I here? Why are you here? And more specifically, what exactly is it that God has saved us to be and to do? That's week three. And then all of that leading into the final week of this series on September 29th. And, and we'll see uh, from Isaiah chapter 6, Lord willing, all of this is Lord willing, right? We're going to see from Isaiah chapter 6 that when we see God for who he really is, only then do we begin to understand what life is really for. And and so this final weekend on September 29th, this is a really important weekend for us because uh, that's the weekend that we will be officially changing our church name to Mission City Bible Church. And so uh, we want that to be an all-in Sunday. We want you to be here for that. If you call this your church home, then we want you to be here as part of this church family as we celebrate God's goodness. So thankful to God for a rich heritage of the past, and we don't want to forget that, uh, but excited as well for all that God still wants to do. So... As you look at that, I hope that you can see this. All of this moving in one single direction. God has a mission. God has a mission. And and so the question for us has never been, does God have a purpose in the work that he's doing in the world and in the work that he's doing in your life? That's not really the question to ask. God has a mission. The question for us is, are we on God's mission? Are we doing what God has created us and saved us to do? Do we know And are we giving our lives for what truly matters the most? So, mission of God, mission of the church, mission of my life, leading to a life defined, we pray, by what matters the most. That brings us today to Isaiah chapter 48. I hope you have your Bible open there. Isaiah chapter 48, as we get into that passage this morning, I I just want to give you a little bit of context around uh, the book of Isaiah and chapter 48 in particular. Isaiah prophesied around the mid-700s BC, before Christ, and the book of Isaiah, uh, you could say, is divided into two parts. The first part of Isaiah is chapters 1 to 39, where the main message is that God is disciplining his people for their sin. The people have given themselves to uh, trust in foreign nations and to worship false gods. And as a result, God has sent them into captivity. The second part of the book of Isaiah then is chapters 40 to 66, where God is offering consolation to the captives who are now returning to their homeland. The problem, though, 
And this is part of the bigger picture of what we're about to see in chapter 48. The problem is that just because the people are coming home geographically doesn't necessarily mean that the people are coming home spiritually. As great as their deliverance has been from captivity, there is still a greater deliverance that needs to happen within their hearts to free them from the captivity of the world. And that's God's main point as we come to chapter 48. He says to them that they call themselves the people of God, but they're not living like it. And so God says in the early part of chapter 48, I told you the works that I would perform, and then I did them, but you still gave credit to your idols of wood and metal. And perhaps the most stinging indictment comes in what God says in chapter 48 and verse 8. Take a look. God says, You have never heard, you have never known, from of old your ear has not been opened, for I knew that you would surely deal treacherously and that from before birth you were called a rebel. So if anything is clear, it's that God is not pleased with the way that his people are responding to him and all of the momentum right now seems to be leading to one place, that God would pour out his wrath and his vindication upon his people yet again because his people have not trusted in him. And God would be completely justified in doing that. But what comes next in Isaiah 48 from God is absolutely shocking. Take a look at the text. Isaiah 48, verses 9 through 11, our passage for this morning. This is God speaking to the people through Isaiah. Verse 9. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it from you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. These few verses in Isaiah 48 are one of the classic passages, maybe uh, the classic passage in all of the Bible about the glory of God. And it's clear from other places in the Bible as well, but especially from these three verses in Isaiah 48, that the mission of God is the glory of God. The mission of God is the glory of God. God is all about his own glory. Look at the text again and notice how committed God is to himself and to his plans for his people. Follow along with me again. Verse 9, he says, For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it from you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another." That's 14 times in three verses that God declares that he is who he is and he does what he does so that he will get all of the glory. Now here's the thing. If you're even just one part human, that rubs you the wrong way. Because we don't think like that, right? Like what do you mean 
that God gets all of the praise and the adoration and the worship and the glory for everything that he does. Like, does that not make God astonishingly self-centered? Like, just think about it. If, if I were to come to you and, and say to you, hey, listen, um, I really hope we can be friends, uh, but I just want you to know right up front that everything I do in my life, I do for my own glory. Just want you to know. Right? Like many of you would probably look back at me and at the very least be thinking in your mind, dude, you are sick. Like, like you've got a problem, you have some issues, and we have counseling for that, and, and you just need to work that out. Because who lives their life for their own praise and glory and adoration and worship in absolutely everything? Like it's just totally foreign to the way that we think. So if God is all about his praise and his adoration and his worship and his glory, does that then make God self-centered? And the answer on one level to that question is yes. And it is for our good that God is most concerned for his glory. Why? Because there is no one like God. God is not like you, and he is not like me. He is not like any of us. There is no one and there is nothing like God. There is no one and there is nothing that compares to God. He is totally set apart from sin and entirely set above his creation. What makes God God is that he alone is worthy of all of the praise and all of the adoration and all of the worship and all of the glory from you and from me and from all the peoples of all the earth for all time. He is God. He alone is God and, he, and everything that he does is solely for the sake of his name. The challenge for us is that sometimes we think that God exists at least in part for the sake of us and for the sake of our name. Like there are times where we have an incredibly human-centered view of life and we have an incredibly human-centered view of God that most often finds its end in what we want and not always in what God wants, which is why these few verses in Isaiah 48 matter so much. It's why we need to pay close attention to what God is saying. So what I'd like to do in the time that we have left is simply draw your attention to three realities from these three verses in Isaiah 48. There's three realities, and, and these three points together are going to form one long sentence. Any English teachers in the room, you're going to be crawling under your chair by the time I'm done because it's a super long sentence. It's kind of a run-on, but anyway. And, and I just want you to see from this, I want you to see these three realities about the glory of God that come out of these few verses. And, and I want to give them to you in the form of two if statements and one then statement. All right? So if and if and then. All right? So here's the first part of this sentence. Number one, you can jot this down. If we are convinced that God, for his glory, has withheld his infinite wrath from us. So that's the first part of the sentence. All right? If we are convinced that God, for his glory, has withheld his infinite wrath from us. Now we see that in verse 9. Take a look. He says, God says, for my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it from you that I may not cut you off. 
So he says here, for my name's sake, God's name represents all of the promises that God has made. His reputation is tied to his, or his name rather, is directly tied to his reputation and to the promises that he has made to his people. And so he says here that he is purposely uh, deferring and restraining his rightful anger against his people so that his name will be praised. In other words, God is promising mercy to his people. God is promising to be faithful to his promise that he will be merciful to the people that he has delivered so that the people will glorify his name and praise him for what he has done. And we know this, don't we? Like this is the gospel. This is Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10 that, that we went through back in the spring. This is, remember, Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3, the Apostle Paul is painting an incredibly dark spiritual picture that existed and was true for every single person who has ever walked on the face of the earth. Paul says, Ephesians 2, verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and here it is, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Like at one time, every single one of us were under the infinite wrath of God because of our sin against him. But then the picture radically changes in Ephesians 2 and verse 4. And Paul says, but God. (laughs) I love that. That's like my favorite verse in all the Bible. But God being, here it is, being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So like, read that and don't miss this. All throughout that passage in Ephesians 2, God is the one who works for our salvation. God is the one who takes the initiative. We are simply the ones who are acted upon. He begins from the premise that every single one of us were dead. Like we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Like not mostly dead, not partly dead. Like let's be honest, who are we kidding here? There's only one way to be dead, right? You're dead. Like, stick a fork in him, Grandma, he's not coming back. He is done, right? So you are dead, dead, dead. Which means then that there is nothing we could do for ourselves even if we wanted to. It's because of God's mercy and love toward us that he has saved us. Like, God is the one who makes us alive. God is the one who gives us grace and raises us up and seats us with Christ. God is the one who gives us faith to believe and makes us a new creation in Christ. And why does God do this? He says in Ephesians 2, verse 7, he says, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God withholds his wrath from you and gives you his mercy and saves you so that he will be glorified. That's the point. It's the same thing in Isaiah 48. People deserved God's wrath and anger because of their sin, and and yet God withholds it. And notice what he says at the end of verse 9. He says that I may not cut you off. That right there. That is why it should matter so much to us that the most important thing to God is his glory. Let me say that again. 
That right there is why it should matter so much to you and to me that the most important thing to God is his glory. Because what he's saying here is that God will not destroy his people because he loves his glory. You could take that and and flip it a little bit and say it a different way and say God is for his people because God is for his glory. Just think about this for a minute. Why is it that throughout the Old Testament, God destroyed entire nations of people who had sinned and rebelled against him, but he never did that with his own chosen people? Like, why is it? Entire nations of people wiped clean off the face of the earth, never to be seen or heard from again because of their sin and their rebellion against God. And yet, God never does that with his own chosen people when they sin and rebel against him. Why? The answer is right here. It's for his name's sake. It's for his glory. The most important thing to God is that his glory be exalted in the world. So the reason that God withholds his infinite wrath from you and from me is not just for the sake of his people, which is often, I think, what we think about first when we think about why God saved us. Like that's almost immediately where we go. We think that God saves us because he loves us. Like, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, right? Like, like we think God saves us because he loves us, and that is certainly true. That's the testimony of the Bible in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. God saves, God delivers his people because, as he says to Jeremiah, he has an everlasting love for his people. But there's a greater reason that compels God to show mercy to his people. There's a greater reason that that motivates God to show his love to his people, a greater driving force that, that leads God to withhold his wrath from his people. The reason God withholds his infinite wrath is for the sake of his name. It is for his glory, so that when God does that, that his people would make much of who he is and all that he has done to save us. And when we get that, well, that changes everything. Like that has to change everything. Like, Like when you understand that instead of God pouring out his wrath against your sin on you, that instead he has unleashed his wrath on his only son on the cross, in your place, for your sins, in my place, for my sins, and that solely because of his mercy and his love toward us, that he has applied that saving work to our lives so that we may know him and make much of him forever. Like when we understand that God has intentionally delivered you from eternal death and he has given you eternal life, like how can we then not just want to praise him 
Like how can it just not well up within us in songs of praise, songs of worship, songs of thanksgiving, prayers of thankfulness to God? How can we not just well up when we understand that God has delivered us from his infinite, holy, and rightful wrath against our sin that would judge us for eternity? How can we not then rise up and praise and worship this awesome God who has saved us by his grace? On some level, that's just got to turn loose a torrent of praise and adoration and worship of the one true and living God. Like, you got you to see this. This is why we sing. This is why we pray. It's why we evangelize. It's why we go on mission trips. It's why we tell our families and our coworkers and our neighbors that there's a way for them to be rescued from the wrath of God due to their rebellion against him. Like, this is why when, when we're telling our testimony to other people, that we don't begin with, I did this, and I did that, and then God saved me. But instead, we lead with, you know what, I was dead in my sin. I was hopeless, I had no life, I couldn't do anything, there was nothing in me that gave me any ability whatsoever to respond, but God. (laughs) But God saved me. But God showed his love and his grace and his mercy toward me and delivered me from his wrath and gave me eternal life in Jesus Christ. Like, like this, when we understand that God has delivered us from his infinite wrath for the glory of his name, it's why then we give our time and our treasures and our talent for the spread of the gospel. This is why we lay the entirety of our life down before him and we filter all of our life through the grid of what will glorify God the most. Like when we get this, when this grips your heart, you begin to see that you have been set free. We got to start here. We got to see this. That if we are convinced that God, for his glory, has withheld his infinite wrath from us, here's the second part of the sentence. And if we are convinced that God, for his glory, has showered his immeasurable grace upon us. So if we are convinced that God, for his glory, has withheld his infinite wrath from us, and if we are convinced that God, for his glory, has showered his immeasurable grace upon us, that brings us now to verse 10. God says through Isaiah, verse 10, notice, he says, Behold, Don't miss that word. Don't miss how important that is. It's a pretty significant word at the beginning of verse 10. God's saying, hey, listen up. Listen up. I have a really important message that you need to hear right now. Like you need to sit up and pay attention to what is about to be said because this is really, really important. And and loved ones, this would be a great time for us just to sit up and pay attention and even just quietly pray in this moment. Okay, God, what do you want to say to me right now? What do you want me to hear right now? God, teach me right now. Verse 10, behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. So remember where we are in the book of Isaiah. Remember where the people of God are at this particular point. The people have come out of captivity, but the captivity has not yet come out of the people. And God says that he has used their captivity to refine them. In many places throughout the Bible, we see that God's refining his people is like silver being refined. 
the silver is put into the furnace so that all of the impurities are burned away and only that which is pure remains. And that's the purpose of God's refining his people to purify them. But notice what he says here. He says, I have refined you, but not as silver. It's a full disclosure here. Um, this is a hard verse to understand. And many commentaries have struggled to explain and, and to really uh, fully understand what is being said here. But it seems that the point of God's message here is that God knows that the purifying work in his people is not yet done. And yet, it's his grace toward them that he does not abandon them, even though they have not responded to him in the way that he wants them to. Here's the point. It is grace that allows impure people like you and me to be in the presence of the God who is himself perfect purity. Like It is his grace. It's his grace that would give his only son who in his perfect purity would take all of our impurities upon himself so that by faith the pure and perfect righteousness of Christ would be given to us. It's pretty amazing. Like just a few chapters later, Isaiah is going to talk about that even more. Chapter 53, verse 4, talking about Jesus looking ahead to the Messiah and, and he says, surely he talking about Jesus, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. That's amazing. That is so awesome that God would do this for us, that he would give his only son in his purity, in his perfection, in his righteousness to come and die for impure, imperfect people like us. But then it keeps going. And, and we need to see here as well that it's the grace of God that walks us through the furnace of affliction. It's the grace of God that walks us through furnaces of our own. Just think Peter in the New Testament was writing to exiled believers hundreds of years after Isaiah, and yet he told them the same thing that the exiled believers in Isaiah's day were also learning. So Peter says this in 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, here it is, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's almost 800 years between Isaiah's prophecy and Peter's epistle, and yet the message to both is exactly the same. It is the grace of God that delivers his people. Like It is the grace of God that delivered his people from slavery in Egypt under Moses. It's the grace of God that delivers his people from captivity to enemy nations in Isaiah's day. It's the grace of God that delivered his people from the ultimate captivity and the ultimate slavery at the cross of Jesus Christ. And it is the grace of God that delivers his people from the furnaces of affliction. And it is because of that grace from this God that makes this God worthy of all glory. So think about it. Think whatever it is that you're going through right now. Marriage problems, 
financial struggles, health concerns, family squabbles, job uncertainties, decision-making, like whatever it is in your life right now, don't forget, never forget that God is gracious and he delivers his people. He will be with you in his grace. God is using this to purify you. You are being transformed into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another and to another and to another. But listen, it doesn't even stop there. It continues to go on because it is also the grace of God that calls us back when we start to wander away from him. Like you gotta understand, that is God's grace and sometimes God uses a furnace of affliction to take us there to call us back to him. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love, right? It's the grace of God that calls us back when we wander away from him. So let's, let's just take this for a second and, and let's put it into our context. Put it into what, what you and I go through right now. God has blessed us with so much, right? Right? Like, like he's given us so much in this country. He's given us so much in this city. God has given us so much here in this church given us time, it's given us money, it's given us possessions, influence, abilities. Like God has given us so much and these are all good things from God. And yet, don't you find it sobering how quickly we have a tendency to take these good things from God and all of a sudden begin turning them into what we feel are some of the most important questions that we could ask about life. Like how do I how do I get a bigger, bigger bank account for myself? How do, I, how do I manage a longer vacation? How do I save for a longer retirement? How do I minimize risk on one hand and maximize reward on the other hand? How, how do I get more for myself without giving up less to others? How do I get more of what I want for myself even though it may not be what I need for myself? Like we just ask, we are so consumed, we are so obsessed, we are so driven sometimes by these very questions as if these are the most important things that we face and deal with in our life. And all the while, while we're asking these kinds of questions, people all around us are going to hell. Like, does, that, does that even move us? Does that even like, spark even just a, a twinge of urgency deep within us? to make us wonder if we really do actually understand what matters most. Like while we're asking some of these questions and others like them, there are thousands of people right here in our own city and billions of people across the world who at this moment are taking their final breath and the only thing that they will know about God for the rest of eternity is his judgment. Like, does that even make a difference? Like, I'm, I'm not saying that asking these questions is a bad thing. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that every one of these questions needs to be asked with a view for how the answer will help point as many people as possible to the glory of God's great name. Like, seriously, what are you giving your life for? 
Right now, what is your life being defined by? Like for all of us, myself included, like this right now, we've got to understand, this is a moment of grace right now. It's a moment of God's grace. This is God's refining, and his grace is in the refining. Because it's, it's like God is saying to us, same thing he was saying to the people in Isaiah's day, he can say the very same thing, thing to us today. It's like, stop trusting in, in the modern day equivalent of your idols of wood and metal and everything else that you're trusting in. Like, stop giving your time and your attention and your worship to the gods of materialism and the gods of consumerism and the gods of individualism. Stop giving your life and your worship. I mean, just look around the culture that we live in. Stop giving yourself to the false gods of paganism. Like, is any of this even moving the needle in our hearts to see the urgency of a lost and dying world around us that apart from Christ, all they will experience is the infinite wrath of God? Yet his grace has been given to you and to me, to us, to go and tell them there's a way, there's a way to be rescued. There's a way to turn away from that. There's a way for you to be delivered and his name is Jesus. Trust in him. Turn away from the false gods. Turn away from the false religion. Turn away from everything in the culture that is taking you away from God and trust in God and spend your life for him. Like I gotta tell you, I'm I'm kind of at a point in life right now where it's like, you know what? I'm not even sure I'm too concerned about what we do. Let's just do something. Like, let's get there and let's tell people it's a way for you to be saved. It's like we've been saved. If we are convinced that God, for his glory, has withheld his infinite wrath from us, And if we are convinced that God, for his glory, has showered his immeasurable grace upon us, then, number three, we must be convinced that God, for his glory, is committed to the spread of his incomparable name through us. This is where it's all going. Verse 11, God says, for my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. The mission of God is the glory of God. God is who he is and God does what he does for the sake of his praise among all the peoples of the earth. And that's what God is talking about here. So go back with me to verse 1 of Isaiah 48. Notice what he says, verse 1. He says, Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel, And who come from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. For they call themselves after the holy city and stay themselves on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. So what he's saying here, these these are the people who bear God's name among all the nations of the earth. There's no nation like this. There's no people like this because they belong to God. They bear God's name even though they are not responding to God in the way that God wants them to at that particular point. And even still, in the midst of that, God will not cut his people off. Like, see the grace in that. See the mercy in that. See the love in that. God will not cut his people off because his people are the tool that God uses through which he will glorify himself among the unbelieving nations around them. 
If God did cut them off, then his name would be disgraced even more. His name would be profaned even more among the surrounding nations who did not believe in God. Same thing happened with God's people in Ezekiel 36. Turn in your Bible to Ezekiel 36, just a a few books forward in your Bible. It goes Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, then Ezekiel. Keep a finger in Isaiah, Isaiah 48. Flip ahead to Ezekiel 36. I just want you to see this passage for yourself because I want you to see how seriously God takes the holiness of his name among all the peoples of the earth. So Ezekiel 36, God said the same thing to Ezekiel in chapter 36 that he says to Isaiah in chapter 48. So Ezekiel 36, let's start at verse 16. It says, The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name, in that people said of them, These are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. So break here just to to give you some context here. God scattered the people among the nations because of their rebellion against God. But no matter where they went, all of the people from all of those surrounding nations would look at those people and say, these are the people who are called by God's name, and yet they look like God has completely abandoned them. They look like God has left them. And so God says that his main concern right now is for his own name. It's for his glory among the nations. So let's pick it up again in verse 22. It says, Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle you, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Now, (laughs) there is... So much to say just about those few verses, but just let this sink in. God gives us a new heart, and God puts his spirit within us, and God saves us to be his people so that the nations will know that he is the Lord. Okay, God says it right here in this passage. He says, it's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. 
And flip back to Isaiah 48. God says the very same thing there in verse 11. He says, for my own sake, for my own sake, God says, I do it. And then he says, I will not give my glory to another. The way that God makes his glory known among the nations is through the people that he has made to be his own. That's the point of Isaiah 48. That's the point of Ezekiel 36. God saves us by his grace for the spread of his glory among all the peoples of the earth. Like, think about this right now. God has saved you. God has put breath in your lungs. God has given you new life right now so that you can make his glory known among all the peoples of the earth. And this is not just for those few people who have this select call from God to go to another nation clear across the world to tell other people about Jesus. This goes for every single one of us. Because last time I checked, Brantford is part of the nations. We go to the people with the good news of the gospel and the glory of God, young and old, big and small, wherever you go and whatever you do, every single day that we live and move and have our being is for the singular purpose of spreading the glory of his name and the grace of his gospel. Like, like you just think about this, like just process this. It should bring us great comfort to know that God is so undeniably committed to his own glory Because that also means that God is undeniably committed to the good of his people. So so just follow this to the end with me, okay? You can go through whatever it is that God has allowed within your life. You can walk through the furnace of your own trials, your own affliction. You can lay your life down before God right here, right now. You can can say, here it is, God. Here's the entirety of my life, my family, my future, my finances, everything. And you can come before God and say, God, I'm holding everything in my life with open hands before you. Here I am. Do with my life whatever you want to do. And you can stand up and say that before God in faith. And you can know without any shadow of a doubt that God is absolutely committed committed to your good because God is absolutely committed to his glory. God will not abandon his people. God will be faithful to his people. God will not cut his people off. And in the expression of his faithfulness, he will be glorified. The mission of God is the glory of God. God is jealous for his own glory. And if we are convinced that God, for his glory, has withheld his infinite wrath from us, and if we are convinced that God, for his glory, has showered his immeasurable grace upon us, then we must be convinced that God, for his glory, is committed to the spread of his incomparable name through us.